So this morning I'm continuing uh, the, the second week of our Rebels and Reformers series. Last week, if you were here, uh, you heard Gary open up and he talked about the Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. I'm super excited about this morning because my character's got a ton of stuff about him. So I'm just not even going to start with any fluff. We're just going to like jump in. Can you get, are we cool with that? Okay. They're excited. So part of the reason why we're doing this series, and each person that we highlight as we go through this series, is a young person found in the Bible. Some of them are in their 20s. A lot of them were teenagers. Some of them were even younger than, than teenagers. They were in their, you know, eight, nine years old. Really cool characters in the Bible that were rebels, reformers, that changed things because of who they were. And so for me, um, as staff, we talked about doing this series. It's not just because we want to talk to the young people in the room and say, if you're not considered young, if you don't consider yourself young, this doesn't apply to you. It's not the case at all. And it's not also to talk to the not considered young people in the room and say that, hey, this is for you. Act like these young people in the Bible. But really, my heart as I go through this, so hear me, whether you consider yourself young or not, this message is for you. What I want you to get from this character today, from this young character today, was his heart. Not how he acted, not how fast he could run because of his fit age or anything like that, but, but what was on the inside. That's my heart this morning, so, so hopefully you pick up on that as well. This matters whether you consider yourself young or not. What's really cool about being young, and some of you hopefully remember this, are still feeling this way, or maybe you see a young person and you're like, they have it, they have it, I want that back. A lot of times young people really actually believe that they can do the impossible. They oftentimes think they have all the answers and think they can fix things, right? You've probably experienced a young person in your life try to tell you they know what's going on, and you're like, you got no idea, yeah. right? But young people, teenagers, 20-somethings, they, they get fed up with the status quo. They don't want to live with it anymore, and, and sometimes people who are not considered young sometimes get used to the status quo. And so they go with it, they go with it day after day after day, and young people are like, nah, not putting up with it. And so sometimes they, out of their youth, um, speak irrationally or, you know, go about it in the wrong way. And, and we've all seen that happen, and young people can probably admit to it as well. But they really believe they can change the world. They believe that what they do with their life matters because it could change the world. And that big belief in, in themselves and in their capacity combined with a group of people in the Bible who believed in a really, really big God and in his big power— that kind of person is what created rebels and reformers throughout the Bible. These two things, the, the, the idea of a young person that I can change the world and, and I have a God who, who can actually do the work for me. That is what combined to make a rebel and reformer. Jeremiah that we talked about last week, he felt it. The way that God's people were acting was wrong and Jeremiah knew it in his gut and rather than going with the status quo, Jeremiah rebelled against it and chose instead to be faithful to Israel's God. And for him, that meant being a mouthpiece for God, being a prophet, and calling Israel's kings and their people back to faithfulness to God. So this morning, the character we're going to talk about, the biblical historical character um, for the second week is David. Now, how many of you guys have heard of the David in the Bible? 
Somebody want to share something that you've heard about David before? Shout it out. He killed a giant. Goliath. Bathsheba, warrior. Give me like two more. Yes. He's a good kid. You're right. One more. Shepherd. Awesome. Man after God's own heart. What'd you say, Sean? You're, you're totally right. Love it. That's like literally that number is in the chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. We're even like, I might even talk about that this morning. Sean, good work. So David has more written about him in the Bible than any other character except for Jesus. We know more about his life. We know more about how he felt. His, like we, we see his, his cries to God of, like, with such vulnerability. I mean, almost more than any other character other than the person of Jesus. It's crazy, and which is hard for me as I stand up here this morning and try to tell you in one week about this character, right? So stick with me. But I think he's one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible. And so I'm excited to talk to you about him this morning. He doesn't just pop in and pop out. Once David comes on the scene, we talk about David. The prophets talk about David. In the New Testament, we look back to David. Jesus, as we'll get to in a little bit, we're going to talk about Jesus this morning, not just David. Jesus is like the fulfillment of David and the prophet's idea of this new David that was coming. David, once he comes on the scene, doesn't really leave, which is why in a room full of people thousands of years later, we're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. Like this guy was important. He was a big deal. He, he made an impact. He was a rebel. He reformed things. The story of David starts way before the person of David is actually born. So I'm going to start with the person of Abram all the way back in Genesis. I know we're talking about Genesis as we get, we're going to go really quickly to catch up to the story of David and Goliath. And then that's where we're going to sit in scripture this morning. First Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. And then we're going to quickly get up to when David gets crowned King, because all of that happens in what we would consider David being a youth, a young person. It's a lot of stuff, okay? So we have Abram, and before, um, before there was a nation called Israel, God calls this person named Abram to leave his family and his country and to follow God. And God promises to make Abram into a great nation and to bless Abram so that he would be a blessing to the nations. The readers, the listeners in those days would have been left wondering, how the heck is this going to happen? And as you keep reading on, Abram's confused because he doesn't have any kids. So how the heck are you going to make me into a nation, into a giant people group? How, and then how is this chosen nation, chosen people group going to be a blessing to all nations? But if you keep reading the story of the Bible, you keep reading this incredible masterpiece of a book you see that it happens. It actually happens. The nation of Israel is born. Abram and his wife, Sarah, finally have a son together, and they name him Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, and they name him Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. You thought your two or three kids were hard. (laughs) 12 sons. And the 12 sons of Jacob, there's this story in Genesis where Jacob wrestles with God, and God renames Jacob Israel. The Hebrew word Israel is a combination of the Hebrew word wrestle and the Hebrew word for God. So combines like one who wrestles with God becomes the nation that we know of as Israel. Now at this point in the story, we don't have a nation. We just have 12 sons, right? So one of those sons, Joseph, is sold into slavery and sent off to Egypt. And eventually Joseph rises to power 
and all his brothers and family moved to Egypt to live with Joseph. Great story. You should read it in Genesis. Joseph is pretty much the brother who's in charge at this point. The Hebrews are now the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. They eventually leave Egypt while God displays his power to the world in crazy, cool, like God-sized ways. Also a really cool story. You should read it. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and eventually they come to the promised land, this land that God is meant to give to his people. And the land gets split up into 12 tribes, and of those tribes, there's a tribe named Judah. And from Judah, we eventually track the lineage down to a man named Boaz. And Boaz shows up in the Bible in the story of Ruth, in the book of Ruth. One of my favorite books in the Bible, you should read that one too. Boaz marries Ruth, who is not a Hebrew. She's actually a Moabite. Cool connections there. Where am I at? See, I'm just getting excited already. (laughs) They give birth to a son, and they name him Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. We'll get back to Jesse in a minute. In Israel, during all this time, God has appointed judges to kind of rule over the people. They don't have a king like all of the nations that surrounded them. That was normal. Other nations at that time had kings that ruled them, but Israel had judges because God was meant to be their king. God was meant to be their king. So the story of David, again, we're talking about him before he's actually born, but it really starts to heat up as the book of 1 Samuel begins. And 1 Samuel begins with the birth of the person Samuel. Samuel's mom's name was Hannah. Hannah was married to a guy named Elkanah. Stick with me, we've got a few weird names coming up. Hannah was one of Elkanah's two wives. Elkanah's other wife's name was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Take into account the time. Can you imagine that situation? Can you imagine how Hannah might have felt to be married to this guy who also has another wife, and she is providing him with kids, with children, but she is not? And how important it was back then to carry on a family lineage, to carry on a family line, how much they tracked that. It was almost as if, like, you get to live on through your family line. And if your family line doesn't continue, then you don't live on through that. It was a really, really big deal. And if any of you women in here have ever struggled with infertility, you even more so can probably imagine how Hannah might have felt. It was devastating. It was heartbreaking for her. So there's this prayer. She cries out to God, asking him to give her a son. And God answers. And she promises to God, saying that if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And what happens, as God answers this prayer, and he does give her a son, and she names him Samuel, he does give him back to God. Not figuratively, but like literally when Samuel is of age, Hannah hands him off to the priest Eli to be raised with Eli, this priest. Gives, literally gives her son back to God. Again, if you're a mom or even a dad, you can imagine like you were heartbroken and devastated. You get this prayer answered and then you give your son up. Crazy situation, crazy story. So Hannah writes this poem that gets recorded in scripture and it's called Hannah's Song. And the main ideas of this poem, there's three of them. It goes like this. Number one, God oppresses the proud and exalts the humble. Number two, despite human evil, God is still at work. Three, God is going to raise up a messianic king. God is going to raise up a future king to rule. Those three things, these three themes are really what the books of First and Samuel are all about. 
These three themes that come up in like the very beginning of 1 Samuel get woven in throughout both 1 and 2 Samuel, which originally were one big book, but we don't like reading big books, so we split it in two. It's kind of what happened. And then really, if we know the history of the Israelites and the people in the book of like the Bible, we're like, man, these three things, they kind of keep going after 1 and 2 Samuel. If we get into 1 and 2 Kings afterward, that's telling the stories of all the kings that come afterward. It happens over and over and over again that God oppresses the proud, but he exalts the humble. God is still at work despite our human evil and our failures. And God will raise up a future king, a messianic king, one that will not be like the rest of these failed kings. Okay? Here we go. We're almost to David, I promise. So Samuel grows up. He's wise. He's well-known. He's the leading prophet of his day. He's respected, he listens, and he trusts in the Lord. Like, he's depicted by the authors as like, this is a good dude. You should be like this guy. Well, one of his sons were appointed as kind of like lower-level judges over portions of Israel, right? Because judges are ruling over, and Samuel's kind of like higher, but his sons are still kind of in charge. But his sons are not like their dad. They pervert justice. They take bribes. They were not in it for God's sake. They were in it for themselves. They were selfish. So as Samuel's getting older, the people come to him and they're like, hey, Samuel, will you appoint for us a king? And really, like the people are saying, they're coming to him like, man, you're good. This has all been good working out since you've kind of been in charge, but we don't want to follow your sons. So can you appoint for us a king? And I mean, everybody else around us has a king, so why shouldn't we have a king too? Because we want somebody to rule, and we trust that you'll appoint somebody good. But again, remember, God was meant to be their king, not a human. It was meant to be God. So Samuel gets really upset because his king is the Lord, and he warns the people about what would happen if he appoints for them a human king, that it wouldn't be good, that they wouldn't live up to all of the hopes and dreams that the people have for him. So Samuel inquires of the Lord and asks him what to do. And God says that the people have rejected him. They've rejected God. So go ahead. Go ahead and give them what they've asked for. So God tells Samuel to choose this guy named Saul. Saul comes into the picture. He looks good. He's tall. He's handsome. He's strong. He has a lot of like the outward appearance that we might be like, "Mm, that's the guy. I could follow him, right? So God tells Samuel, choose Saul. Saul starts off good. People love him. And then eventually his pride undoes him. Because remember, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And Saul starts off strong. And then as his pride takes over, God starts to oppose him. And God looks to exalt someone else into this role of king who would humble themselves to rule over their people. Looks for a humble ruler. Actually says that God is going to choose someone after his own heart, which is where we get David being a man after God's own heart. So Saul screws up. He gets selfish. He gets proud. He doesn't lean on God. He doesn't trust in the Lord, but rather in himself. So Samuel rebukes him. He grieves over Saul's failure. Like Samuel is upset. This was my guy. This was my choice. This was our first king. And he failed. Actually, the Bible says from that day forward, like Samuel didn't even see Saul. He moved to a different city called Ramah and just stayed there. Didn't have a relationship with Saul anymore. And then God speaks to Samuel and sends him to a town called Bethlehem. Have you heard of it? Yeah? It's this little insignificant town that just keeps coming up in Scripture as this insignificant town, and these really cool people keep coming from Bethlehem. And within Bethlehem, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Remember Jesse? 
Okay, we've been following this down, right? We got some like, I'm, I'm gonna, we got this lineage genealogy stuff happening. We're gonna talk about David for a little bit and then I'm gonna nerd out a little bit more about genealogy stuff. It's really cool. It's not a boring part of the Bible, I promise. So Samuel and Jesse go together to sacrifice to the Lord and Samuel tells Jesse, hey, bring your sons along because God has told Samuel from this house is gonna be the next king that I appoint. And so as each son comes and passes by Samuel, one by one by one, and Samuel sees from the outside and thinks, this guy, this one, has got to be it. He's tall, he's whatever, he's strong. It's first son, second son, third son, all the way down through seven sons passed by Samuel. And God still says, no, 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 no. And Samuel's kind of like, hey, Jesse, you have any sons you didn't tell me about? I mean, it's kind of this like awkward moment of like, well... I think God's right. And so hopefully maybe you got like a skeleton in your closet and a son hiding off somewhere. And Jesse's like, well, um, I, I do. And he, I have a son named David and he's tending the sheep. It's like, I didn't even think about bringing him along to sacrifice with you. I just wanted him to take care of the sheep, right? And so David comes and um, they go and get David. God says to Samuel, these words, arise and anoint him for this is he. Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And from that moment, the Spirit of God was on David from a young age. At this point, I'm going to tell you how old he is later. He's young, okay? I want you to, like, just stick with that. I don't want to tell you all the secrets yet. The last son of Jesse from the small town of Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, and the story of the Bible has a new major character thrown in that shakes everything up. God chooses a teenager to be king over his people. Can you imagine if our search committee chose one of our high schoolers to be our next lead pastor? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get a few claps now, but it, once it actually happens, I mean, <laughs> why? Like, why would God choose a teenager? What makes him special? What makes him qualified? You can't even run for president until you're 35, right? Like, teenagers are not allowed. We don't, we don't look to them to, like, play these roles. So what was God thinking? Remember the poem. Remember these three themes. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble, regardless of age. There was no age put on that in Hannah's song, this theme that comes through. David was humble. He comes from humility. And God exalts him to the highest position, the highest role within his people. Lineage matters, and especially in ancient Israel. They kept records of everything. It's crazy how many records are kept in the Bible of like who was a son of who and who married who and this was a grandfather of that person and it seems super boring, but it mattered like crazy to ancient Israelites and to the Hebrews and to Jewish people. Like this stuff matters. It mattered what family you came from. It mattered what tribe you came from. It mattered that you had kids in order to carry on your lineage. Your lineage was a part of your identity in ancient Israel. Remember, lineage is important because we're going to come back to it. Okay, you guys ready to start talking about David? Yeah. Okay. So you, I know, finally, right? I agree. <laughs> the Bible is this huge book. And within it is this collection of 66 books. And in each book, there are a whole bunch of stories about stuff that actually happened. Stuff that's true. They're connected. Each story builds on the one before it. You can't read one book or one story and think that you completely understand it. You have to see it within the picture of the whole story of Scripture. 
One of the reasons why I get so excited about the Bible is because I have come to be able to see and learn, and and like some authors make it obvious, some authors don't, but there are countless connections from this book to that book, from this person to that person. You start to see and learn all these things as you dig into the Bible, as you read it, and you can't deny that there's purpose. Like it doesn't happen by accident. These connections are not accidental. It is purposeful. But just like Hannah's song, these themes, despite human evil, despite our failures, God is still at work. God has been working out his plan through his people, despite their failures. Even what I've given you this morning for us to jump into the story of David is is really but a fraction of the stuff in the Bible that is connected to the person of David before we even get to read about the person of David. So open up your Bible and read it. Read your Bible, absorb it. It doesn't happen in one sit down. Over and over and over again, open up your Bible. This book has been preserved for thousands of years so that you in this room in San Jose might have the opportunity to open it. That's a big deal. It's crazy. If you have your Bible, we're going to finally jump into 1 Samuel verse 17, or chapter 17, sorry. If you don't have your Bible, bring it with you, or there's one in the pew in front of you, or open up your phone, download the Bible app real fast, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you don't own a Bible, there's a big guy in the back on the end. His name's Gary. He'll give you his, okay? And he's got really cool journal entries in the margins and stuff. It's special. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 has 58 verses in it. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of them. But we're going to read the whole story of David and Goliath, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'll tell you which verses I'm going to, um, but try to stay with me because it's a really cool passage. We're going to start chapter 17, verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. It's about 125 pounds on his legs. And he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and, his, and its iron point weighed 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose, choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Okay, hold there. We'll skip a few verses. So I want you to see the author is painting this picture of of, of this person of Goliath. And he's not telling you all these details because you're like, it matters to you that much, but we're about to compare the person of Goliath to the person of David. And we're going to see this huge contrast. And so the author sets you up, man, he's over nine feet tall and he's got all this heavy armor on and he's a trash talker, right? Like he's defying Israel and he's defying these people and he's defying their God. This is the person who shows up on the scene. It was actually common for the Philistines to battle in this way, where it was just kind of like, you send your best, we'll send our best, and whoever wins, wins the whole battle. It's a great way to save lives. The Philistines, this was kind of like their practice. Okay, let's skip to verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, 
Take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Okay, so David enters the story. Pause there. We'll skip a few verses in a minute. David enters the story. He's not in battle. He's back tending the sheep, right? This is what David did. He was a shepherd, like some of you shouted out. But his brothers, he actually has three brothers that are in this battle. Three brothers that are already there. They're Israelite army. Like they're, they've been trained to be in the battle. David was not. So Jesse, David's dad's like, take all this food, take it to your brothers, take it to their commanders, find out what's going on. Tell me how they're doing. Sends David out. Verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies once he got to the, to the battle, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king, who will, the king, now talking about Saul, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Okay, so hold on. David shows up on the scene, right? And for 40 days, right? We talked about how sometimes people can get, you know, get used to the status quo. This Israelite army for 40 days, twice a day, Goliath comes out, screams at him, yells stuff and like trash talks, and they just got used to it. They got scared. They were fearful. And like, this is what happens. So David shows up. It happens again. And David's like, who's this guy? He's uncircumcised. He's a Philistine. Like he's coming out here and talking trash about my God. That's not cool. Like that's, kind of, that's the kind of attitude that I read that with with David. Like that he comes out here and is just like, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. Like he felt it in his gut. This wasn't right. So he had this crazy confidence. And his confidence comes from what we're about to read here next. Okay, verse uh, 31. And this is going to be the biggest chunk that we read. We're going to get to through to 50. I might stop a couple times. Where are we? 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. So people hear David like talking like, you know, confidence and all this stuff. And they're like, oh, tell the king that. Somebody's actually willing to fight this guy. <laughs> what David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. It's the first time David gets knocked because of his age. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. 
So hold right there real fast. David comes out and is just like, I don't care that I'm young. Here's what I've done. Here's where I've been. And then the key thing is what I just said. The Lord who delivered me from those situations will deliver me here. He doesn't come out and say like, I've done all this stuff. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. I've rescued all this stuff. Like I'm capable. I can do it. He says, the Lord delivered me there. The Lord will deliver me here. His faith, his trust was in God. And it becomes clear, like his confidence that he has, like almost might seem bordering on cockiness. Like that confidence comes from, he's seen God deliver him from dangerous situations. So he knows God will do it again. Then Saul said to David, all right, dude, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Puts on all the king's armor and he says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch and of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. This is the first Israelite to step out from their line to approach this giant from Gath. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. Now, real fast, my guess is Goliath didn't go and let the author know, hey, I want you to make sure and put in there that I thought David was handsome. It's probably not what happened, but the author is probably, he's trying to let you know something as the reader, as the listener, as, as like kind of the audience. He's trying to let you in on something about who David is. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, three different weapons, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. David, yeah. David matched trash talk with trash talk a little bit. (laughs) And again, it wasn't about him. David continues to look and say, the Lord will deliver me into your hands. The Lord will do this for me. It's not about me. It's a humble David who shows up on the scene, stays humble in the midst of a dangerous moment where he had to be courageous and bold to say things, right? Like he didn't back down because he knew that God was with him. And all those who gathered here will know that there is not, all those who gather here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Whew. Okay. 
checking the time. I'll quickly um, now take all this stuff and, and, and wrap it together a little bit, okay? This is the kind of stuff that like epic stories are made about. This is the kind of stuff that like action-packed movies are, 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 are all about, right? Like David was a, a warrior, and not because he'd been trained to fight with a sword, but because God had allowed him to be delivered from like wild animals. And all of this is happening after David is anointed as the king by Samuel in a small ceremony with his dad and brothers there that nobody else probably knew about. And David doesn't demand his kingdom right away, but he actually lets God work it out in his own time. David's first act as the anointed king is to go defeat Goliath. What happens next, his next kind of like big act that we see in scripture as the anointed king is that after Goliath, He serves Saul. He serves the current king, knowing I'm the anointed king, and I'm going to come here, and I'm going to be your harp player. I'm going to come into your kingdom, and I'm going to serve you almost like one of the house servants. Again, the author is highlighting for us David's humility. So in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, um, we'll fast forward ahead and we see, okay, after all this happens, David's in Saul's household and Saul gets jealous of David. David is a warrior. Everywhere he goes, every battle he fights, he's successful. They start singing songs about how Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David becomes more popular in the land than Saul ever was. And so Saul gets jealous, he gets prideful, and he doesn't want to lose the throne. There's a lot of perks that come along with being king, I bet. And so Saul conspires to kill David. He, he actually, at one moment while David's playing the harp, he throws a javelin, a spear at him trying to kill him. And David misses it and he gets stuck in the wall. Time and time again, from that moment on, now David is running away from Saul, trying to protect his own life. He's evading Saul's attempts to kill him while, you know, more than once, Saul is like basically put in David's hand to be killed and David doesn't do it. He spares his life. And scripture continues to show David as this person who inquires of the Lord, who trusts in God, who goes where God sends him, who trusts that God will work out his plan and I don't have to do it myself. If God wants to anoint me as king, he'll make me king. I don't have to do it myself. The author continues to show us like this person of David. Like we get to see the best of David in 1 Samuel. If you want to see David at his best, read 1 Samuel. If you want to read about him as a human, read 2 Samuel. Okay. At this point in David's life, he's now living amongst the Philistines whom he once defeated because he's in hiding. The Philistines were in almost constant warfare as one of Israel's closest neighbors, with Israel because of Saul's pride and failure. This last battle against the Philistines, both Saul and his son Jonathan, who was David's best friend, were killed. Naturally, Saul's killed, so David comes cheering back to Jerusalem, ready to take his throne. It's not what happens, actually. We get David again. What happens? He hears the news. Saul's dead, and so he mourns. He weeps. He fasts. Like he is saddened that Saul would be killed who's been chasing him around trying to kill him. Crazy. We again see David as humble, not about himself. So now let me fill you in on some of the ages if you're not sure. When David was first anointed king, he was less than 15 years old. Crazy. He's young, right? Like God would choose this youth. 
when David fights Goliath, he's probably like 17, 18 years old. Again, still a teenager stepping up against this guy over nine feet tall. From that moment until David actually gets crowned king, he doesn't get crowned king until he's almost 30 years old. It's this giant waiting period of where some of it was good, but most of it was bad. Most of it was hard. Most of it was living in caves, running away from somebody trying to kill him. He's only got about 400 people, you know, like 400 fighting men with their wives and kids following him along, but Saul's got thousands. It's this crazy waiting period. And ironically, waiting is one of the things that I think our young people are probably worst at, right? We have iPhones. We want, you know, immediate access to everything, fast food. Everything has to happen now, now, now. And they're smart enough and technologically savvy enough to actually make it happen now, which is awesome. It's because God's given us the ability and the mind to do all those things. And yet David was somebody who wasn't just humble, but he was willing to wait. He was willing to be different than maybe the stereotypical young person in that way. David rebels against the unbelief of his fellow Israelites. He rebels against the king himself, choosing to place God as his ultimate king. David reformed Israel once he finally is crowned king into one nation. And David, because of that, brought temporary peace over all of Israel. He grew Israel's land. It was awesome. David formed the image that the biblical authors would use as they look forward to this future king. Remember Hannah's song, there's a future messianic king coming. David now is the image. That future king is actually called like the new David. Come from nothing, humble, no fanfare, full of integrity. David reformed the idea of the Messiah. Eventually, the author does let us in on some of David's failures in 2 Samuel, right? As as the story of David continues. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant promise with David. God says to David these words, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, let's get back to the lineage. I'm going to try to nerd really quickly. I'm almost done. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 1, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you see it starts off with this really long lineage of how we get from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, right? Any of you guys ever seen that before or read it? Usually I just skip it because it's mostly boring, okay? From Abraham to David, there's 14 generations. From David to the exile in Babylon, there's 14 generations. From the exile in Babylon to Jesus, there's 14 generations named. In the Hebrew language, there are no numbers, but actually letters are given a numerical value. So like if in English, A was 1, B was 2, C was 3, so on and so forth, right? We get that. So this is kind of how it worked in the Hebrew language. And if you were to write the name David in Hebrew, the numerical value of it is 14. So everything about that genealogy in Matthew 14, 14, 14 is pointing like the new David is coming, the new David is coming, the new David is coming, and it ends. It's all looking forward to who's going to be at the end of this. When is this going to stop? And it stops with who? Jesus, right? Awesome. I love it. Okay, now let's talk about Jesus for a little bit. Thank you. I'm so glad you're with me. I don't even know who said that, but I'm sure all of you felt that in your heart. 
Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything. He, like Scott said, like the most radical, rebellious reformer there that ever lived. Like he came on the scene, changed everything. He was the end of this crazy genealogy. And now today, living post-Jesus, Hannah's song, God opposes the proud, exalts the humble. God, dis- God works out his plan despite our evil and failure. It's, not, it's no longer God will raise up, but God already did. We get to live in the already did part. He already did raise up a messianic king that we get to follow. And what's crazy and what's cool, and here's how it applies to you, and here's how you fit into this genealogy, and this is why I get excited about it, is because Jesus offered his life to us. And Jesus said that if like, you accept me, if you trust in me as your king, not in your earthly kings, but in me as your king, you get adopted into God's family. All of a sudden, you are the, the next part of that genealogy. You get adopted in as a co-heir with Christ. You get to be a part of this royal priesthood of David, spiritually, right? Like every one of us in this room that's chosen to follow Jesus, place our trust and our hope in him as our king, not ourselves, not in our own power, but in his power, we get adopted into the family. We get adopted into this genealogy family that, that gives us all the rights that come along with it. The rights that come along with being a part of a royal line. Jesus calls his followers then, as we, as we look at Jesus' life, to live radical countercultural lives, right? Like Scott said, he was often saying stuff that was counter to what culture was saying. That they might reform the people around them and be a blessing to the people around them, and that this movement of Jesus would multiply. That more and more people would be adopted into this family, that more and more people would become a part of this long history of genealogy that after Jesus doesn't look forward to something, but we look back to someone. And we're looking back at Jesus. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that everything in the Bible is looking forward or looking back and talking about Jesus. And Jesus is calling you into relationship because he wants you to be adopted into his family. He wants you to be the next line, the next person to be a part of this genealogy. He wants you to be in his family and to live with him and have eternal life. Like Jesus is calling you into that glorious awesome relationship. And if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship, if you're here this morning and that's you, he wants you, failures and all, to humble yourself and live for him. David became the gold standard, and yet there was somebody better. His name's Jesus. And so we get to look at David and his humility, but, but Jesus was better, right? And if you're here, Jesus is asking you, like, you don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect. And he offers you his identity if you'd humble yourself and place him as the king over your life. I'm about to pray here in a second. The band's gonna come back up. We're gonna worship one more song before we close out. Um, Every single person in this room, every single one of you has the potential to be a rebel and reformer regardless of your age. It's not about your age. It's about what's inside. It's about your heart. It's about David's courage, his boldness, his humility, his integrity, his, his ability to wait. Let's stop looking on the outside and judging each other. Let's look at the inside like God does. Let's see the heart as Jesus sees the heart. Let's exalt the humble as God does. As a church, as a community, we have no idea what hangs in the balance of each of us individually, humbly living for our King, Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you um, oppose the proud and exalt the humble and that Jesus could be the perfect example, the fulfillment of David to show us what it looks like to live a humble life. And that despite our human failures, you give us the ability to move forward, that your plan still comes through. God, I ask that you would humble me and take away my pride. That everyone in this church, that we would humble ourselves 
we would walk out of this building and live humbly for you and trust in you as our king, as David did? Would you give us the best aspects of David's character? Yeah, God, and if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, I ask that they would just feel a strong sense of your presence in this room and in this moment, that they would know that you want them, that they are wanted here, God. Yeah, it's in your name we pray. Amen.